0: Amen. This morning we're continuing through the book of Matthew. And um, we're going to be talking about the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord. But before we do, let's pray together again. Father, we... Worship your holy name. And, Lord, what what a prayer. We, on that day when our strength is failing, the end draws near and our time has come still, my soul will sing your praise unending. 10,000 years and then forevermore. So, Lord, that is that is our prayer. Lord, that whatever... Life brings our way and sometimes those challenges are very great. We might be able to say as the end draws near what the Apostle Paul said when he said, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. And so we have loved your appearing, King Jesus, and we gather together to remember when you came and to look forward to when you will come again. And we worship your holy name. So as we look at this text this morning, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to see you for who you truly are. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 12. So we talk about the servant of the Lord. As I mentioned in this uh, passage, um, Matthew quotes um, the book of Isaiah, and um, he quotes one of what is referred to as the servant songs in Isaiah. So something that commentators have noticed for a long time and maybe you have too if, when you've read the book of Isaiah, is that there are several passages um, where, G, where it, uh, a, the servant of the Lord is referred to, refers to the servant of the Lord. Sometimes that servant is identified as the nation of Israel. Sometimes the servant seems to be an individual, and sometimes it's not clear which one. And... And so there's kind of this mysterious figure who is the servant of the Lord who um, stands in the place of Israel, represents Israel, uh, but is faithful to Israel. Perhaps the most famous servant song um, that you will be familiar with is the end of Isaiah 52 and the beginning of Isaiah 53, which says he was, Uh, He was uh, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's one of the servant songs. And so there's this figure that the prophet Isaiah prophesies about uh, who is the servant of the Lord. And we're going to learn more about him this morning from Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 15. Uh, And if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of God's word, the reading of God's word. Uh, Isaiah, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 15. It says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice, justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. The word of God. You may be seated. So we're going to note five things about the servant this morning. We're going to talk about the wisdom of the servant, the identity of the servant, the mission of the servant, the gentleness of the servant, and the hope of the servant. The wisdom, the identity, the mission, the gentleness, and the hope of the servant. So first, we're going to talk about the wisdom of the servant. And so when we look at this section here in the book of Matthew, as we've mentioned before, this is a section of growing opposition to uh, the ministry of Jesus. It really began back in chapter 10, right, when Jesus warned his disciples that when they go out to proclaim him, they will face opposition, okay? Uh, they, they, they will be persecuted. Even John the Baptist, as we saw in Matthew 11, had his doubts uh, concerning Jesus, most likely due to the unrealized expectations that they had of who the Messiah was to be, okay? Okay? And uh, and Jesus, uh, in, in immediately prior to this, as we talked about last week, has directly challenged the religious establishment, if you will, particularly on their traditions associated with the Sabbath. Okay? And, and we saw at the end there, right before our passage there, verse 14 in chapter 12, it says that the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Uh, and so... And 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 then throughout even the remainder of chapter 12 we see further opposition to Jesus, okay. But right in the midst of this passage here, if, if you if you're reading the book of Matthew and you're reading through chapter 12, verses 15 through 21, there it just it seems a little out of place. It, it seems a little weird. Uh, you know, it's like what 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 is what is Matthew getting at here? And, and how is this a fulfillment of this, of this prophecy? Well, I think what it is, is that in, in kind of this, uh, this climaxing sense of, of, of uh, or this increasing sense of opposition to Jesus, and, and, this, uh, and, the, and primarily built around the, the false expectations of what the Messiah should be like, Matthew is, is choosing to just kind of interject in the middle of this, right a, a, a quotation a passage to to show to show who Jesus really was to show that there's old testament warrant that Jesus is the way that he is rather than rather than what they wanted him to be okay and so he 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 kind of interjects this quotation in here this very important quotation to lay down for us the reader who Jesus was called to be so that we would as the readers, so that we wouldn't miss what so many in Jesus' day did miss. And that is that he was the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, but in a way different than most people expected. In verse 15, it says, Jesus, um, aware of this, withdrew from there. And so we have to ask, aware of what? Well, as we just read in verse 14, aware that the Pharisees were starting to plot against him how they could kill him. Okay? And so it says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Okay? It would, it would, uh, he withdrew from there. And then he says that this, Matthew says that this happened in fulfillment of scripture. And then he quotes Isaiah 42, as we just talked about. The first thing I want to see here about the servant of the Lord, as I mentioned, is I want to talk about the wisdom of the servant, the wisdom of the servant. Now, now we have to ask, um, how is this? How, how is this a fulfillment of the passage? How is this a fulfillment of the scriptures? Uh, how is withdrawing? How is withdrawing from that area a fulfillment of this scripture about the the? about him being the servant of the Lord. And I think it's a fulfillment in the sense that he's withdrawing because he he was this kind of Messiah, the promised kind of Messiah, not the kind of Messiah that they were hoping for. Okay, so that's how it's a fulfillment of Scripture. Okay, and we see the wisdom of the servant in that he withdrew because the Pharisees were starting to plot against him. And we also see his wisdom in the fact that he was commanding people that he was healing not to make him known and that is and, and and that is that jesus knew jesus knew he was wise to discern when he needed to stand his ground and when he needed to just back away okay and that takes a lot of wisdom and i think that and we see and so we see the wisdom of christ here he knew what he, he knew what he was appointed to. He knew his destined end. He knew what he was heading towards. He knew what he would accomplish. But he also knew that you don't have to make things harder on yourself than, than you need to. Sometimes we make things harder than they have to be. There was no point in him standing his ground before he needed to. So he wisely withdrew from there. Um and so and so that's something I think that we can learn and take away from Jesus' Position here we should seek god and ask his wisdom to know at what points we need to stand our ground and at what points we need to just walk away when we follow christ when we serve god we will face opposition right jesus faced opposition so sometimes people say when they, when they face opposition sometimes people say well maybe that was the sign that it wasn't the right path well sometimes opposition may be a sign you're on the right path because if they Jesus said if they persecuted me they'll persecute you. Sometimes God's dif, sometimes difficulties are a time to stand your ground. Sometimes it's God's way of turning you in another direction. But to discern which is which, we need wisdom from God. Just as Jesus exercised here. And note that Jesus also said that he told, he told people not to make him known. And maybe you've wondered about that. You know, why would Jesus, in many places all over the Gospels, he would tell people not to make him known? We would think, well, that's, I thought that was the whole point, for people to know who he was, and why would he tell people not to make him known? But if you think about it, Jesus is actually exercising great wisdom here. Because Jesus had a ministry, as we said, but he had an unexpected ministry. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus came, contrary to their expectations, he came not to overthrow Rome, but to save it. Which was not, by the way, a popular message for nationalistic Jews. Um, Remember the story of Jonah and the Assyrians were oppressing Israel and God told Jonah, hey, I want you to go preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah didn't want to. Why? Because he knew that God was a merciful God. And and Jesus takes up the mantle of Jonah, and the Jews wanted him to overthrow Rome. And Jesus says, "You don't understand why I've came. I've came, I've came so that the Gentiles will hope in me, that I'll be a light to the nations." And so and so it was different. And so he came. And and so he came to proclaim the gospel and to va- to validate that gospel through his many miracles. But he also told people. You know, to to not make him known. And the reason was that because the more attention Jesus got from his fans, the more attention Jesus got from his enemies at the same time. Popularity oftentimes hindered Jesus' ministry rather than helped it. It made him more of a spectacle to behold than a prophet to be heard. And so Jesus wisely Exercises wisdom. He withdraws from here. He tells these people over here, don't make me known because I have a mission to accomplish. We see that Jesus is there and he's not clamoring for attention. You know, most people want attention, most people want a following, but Jesus said, I didn't come to get a following, I came to save the world. And so he's picking his battles, he's dictating the terms of his ministry. And I feel like in our day, in our generation, we're going to, have to, we're going to have to gain a lot of wisdom. Because in our lives, we're going to have to know which battles to pick and which ones not to pick, okay? Every, every post on Facebook is an, isn't a place to plant a flag in the ground, okay? We have to be wise, okay? We have to exercise wisdom. We have to think critically and learn to stand our ground and, and, and and be careful, too, not to just gain a following, you know? I'm, a, I'm afraid, you know, if you, if you pick battles, you can gain a following. You know that? If, 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 I, if I make the right Facebook posts and tag the right people in them and stir up a, good, a bunch of controversy, guess what? A lot of people start flocking to your page, seeing what, what's he going to stir up next, you know? That's easy to do. But Jesus wasn't there to, to, to start a fight, to pick a battle. He wasn't clamming for attention. He had a mission to fulfill. And that's what we do. We have a mission to fulfill. And so we can't let what's happening on the outside. Someone may want to pick a fight for us, with us, but if that is going to get in the way of the mission we have to fulfill, then sometimes we just have to walk away to, to stay focused on the mission God has for us. So number one, we see the wisdom of the servant. Number two, we see the identity of the servant. Verse eighteen, there says, "Behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him." And so, um, so there's this motif here that is picked up by Isaiah about the chosen, my servant whom I have chosen, right there. So I, I think if you if you read the 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 Old Testament, you'll pick up on this, this chosen motif, this chosen servant. God, God for example, he, he chose Abraham, right? He chose Abraham to do what? To be, his, he, to be his chosen people and his offspring after him to be his chosen people. He didn't choose everybody. He chose Abraham to be the vehicle through which he would bring his salvation into the world. Just as he chose Israel. And then that chosen motif gets carried forward. He chose chose Moses, right? Moses didn't choose God. God chose Moses through the burning bush to be his prophet, to lead his people out of slavery from Egypt into the promised land. He chose Joshua. He chose David to be the king of Israel against whom all future kings would be weighed. He chose David to give David the promise that it would be one of his offspring who would reign on the throne of Israel forever. It's God's chosen servant. And then Isaiah picks up this this chosen motif and he says that there is going to be another chosen servant of the Lord. And look at there, it says in verse 18, My beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. Does that sound familiar? It should because the only two places in the Gospels where God audibly speaks, he says these words. At the baptism and at the transfiguration, God the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. You might not have realized that, but that, those words that God the Father spoke we were not chosen, we're, did not just come out of thin air. He was actually referencing this Old Testament passage identifying divinely, literally from heaven, identifying Jesus with the prophecy in Isaiah 42, which came 700, some 700 years before Jesus was born. Okay? That is, that almost nothing, almost virtually nothing in Jesus' life happens that wasn't prophesied about in scripture down to the very words that god the father used at the baptism and at the transfiguration because he wants people to know that jesus didn't just show up out of nowhere out of a vacuum jesus condemned the pharisees because they rejected him but but he told them if you under if you believe the scriptures you would believe me because the scriptures testify about me So despite many people's false expectations of Jesus and how they were wrong about Jesus, it wasn't Jesus' fault they were wrong because it was there the whole time. It was right there in Isaiah 42. My chosen servant with whom I am well pleased. And God the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is him. This is my beloved son. He is loved by the Father and everything that he does is pleasing to him. And significantly, God says here, I will put my spirit on him. Now, this is huge, right? Because what is being prophesied here is a servant of the Lord who is uniquely endowed with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we kind of take the Holy Spirit for granted in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, because the Spirit is poured out on all who believe in him. When you believe, the Bible says you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Okay? But you have to remember that in the Old Testament, it, it didn't really work the same way. God's spirit, the, 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 the language that is used of God's spirit in the Old Testament is that he comes uh, r- rather sporadically and oftentimes in temporary ways. In the book of Judges, for example, Samson, it would say the spirit of God would rush upon him. Okay? And, and, and then some men, like, like Moses, for example, had an unusual measure of the spirit. Okay, and you remember there's one case in the in uh, during the wilderness um, trials when uh, God uh, Moses needed help, right? And God said, "I'll take some of the spirit that is on you, and I'll give it to these to these to these other men." And uh, when he did that, these other men started prophesying, and some of them didn't show up like they were supposed to. They were out in the camp, and they started prophesying out in the camp. And uh, Joshua uh, said go get them because they're prophesying out in the camp. And he was concerned that these other men prophesying would kind of diminish Moses' authority because now Moses wasn't the only one who had this, this measure of the spirit. And in Numbers eleven twenty nine, 29, Moses' responds says, uh, Moses says to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Okay? Well, that was What? That was Moses' wish, but guess what? It wasn't realized in the Old Covenant. But guess what? Guess what we have through Jesus Christ? We all have the Spirit of God. God answered Moses' prayer, not specifically to Israel exactly, but to the true Israel, that is, to the whole world, to those who believe. And so Jesus was, and so we have to feel then what it is that somebody comes on the scene. During this old covenant era, who is uniquely endowed with the Holy Spirit in a way never seen before in the history of the world. And that person is Jesus Christ. And God says, this is him. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And so we see the wisdom of the servant and we see the identity of the servant. The one chosen by God, uniquely endowed with the Holy Spirit so that through him the spirit may be given to all of God's people. So the identity of the servant, number three here, the mission of the servant, the mission of the servant. In the verse 18 there, it says, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. It could be translated, by the way, he will proclaim justice to the nations, to the nations. So as we've said here, lots of controversy around Jesus deals with the, the misunderstanding about the nature of his ministry, and so it's appropriate then as as I, as I said earlier, that Matthew would kind of interject this passage in here to just kind of lay it out there what what jesus's ministry was supposed to accomplish, and that is that he was supposed to bring ju- he's, he is going to bring justice to the nations, justice to the gentiles, and so he just kind of throws that in there, remember Matthew. Matthew's gospel has the most Old Testament quotations. It's it's quite clear that he has a primarily Jewish audience in mind in his gospel. And so they would be the ones who would be most prone to misunderstanding the nature of Jesus's ministry. And so as he records this heightened opposition to Jesus, he's throwing in this verse here to help his readers see that there is a reason that they misunderstood Jesus, but that... Jesus wasn't going off script here. He was doing exactly what he was supposed to do the whole time. Bring justice to the nations. Bring justice to the Gentiles. And this, of course, looks forward then to the way Matthew will end his book with the Great Commission, where it says, "You will make disciples of all nations, all Gentiles, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit." And so, and so, God, uh, Jesus came to bring justice. To the Gentiles, and of course, biblically speaking, biblically speaking, uh, justice relates justice relates to judgment and, and 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 right right judging, right judging. And so, uh, d- d- one of the great things that Jesus will accomplish when He returns is He will render perfect justice. Because he knows, he sees what everybody does in secret, in private, and in public. He knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so God, God, and God alone will render perfect justice on the last day. And notice here though that it says that he'll bring justice to the Gentiles. And you have to understand that this would be quite striking if you're a Jew. Because from the Jewish perspective, what's happening? I'm being oppressed by the Gentiles. I'm being, I'm, I, I, you know, the, 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 and 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 they were. I mean, the Romans weren't super friendly. Okay, they're being oppressed by the Gentiles. Okay, and yet Jesus says that He has come to bring justice to the Gentiles. And yet, of course, this justice is different. It's different than the justice the Jews wanted, because it's justice for the nation. That is all nations. That is, it's a justice that that it's a justice that cuts across. Ethnic lines, political lines, identity markers. It cuts across all those. God is no respecter of persons. God shows no partiality. And despite their claims to the contrary, and despite the legitimate oppression that was being dealt to them by the Jews, the fact of the matter is, is that the Jews themselves were no more righteous before God than the Romans who oppressed them they too flouted God's authority just in different ways. Which is why Paul would go on to say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so, and so the servant came to proclaim justice to all. And what kind of justice did he come to proclaim? Well, the, the, the standard message of Jesus was this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus told a story one time. These uh, he said, uh, people were asking, they were people were concerned about. Uh, it says the Jews who Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. You remember that? That is that there were some Jews who were killed by the Romans and presumably unjustly. Okay. And what does Jesus say in response to that? Not what you'd expect. In response to that, Jesus says, "Here is what I have to say about that. You better repent." or you too will likewise perish in other words what he was saying was that at the end of the day the justice that he comes to bring it cuts across lines of roman or jew okay at the end of the day it cuts across all those lines and we all must stand individually, personally, before God to give an account for what we did in the body. And it doesn't matter how they're violating God's law over there because what you're going to have to give an account for is how you're violating God's law right here. It's a justice that cuts across all boundary lines. But if you repent and entrust yourself and your life and your all to God's chosen servant... He forgives you of your sins. He himself puts his spirit upon you and he will take the justice that you deserve and he'll take it on himself, on the cross, paying the penalty for sins so that you don't have to. So that what? So that, as Paul said, so that God could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And through him, we too become servants. Through the servant of the Lord, we become servants of the Lord. Chosen, beloved, and well-pleasing to the Father. And And he renders his justice by paying the penalty for our sins and by giving us his spirit, which does what? Which makes us just from the inside out. That is the follower of Christ should be like Christ is, a just person, righteous inside and out. And that happens by his spirit, and that's what, the, that's what the servant came to do. And so we see the wisdom, the identity, and the mission of the servant. Number four here, we see the gentleness of the servant. The gentleness of the servant. Verse 19 says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. <clears throat> and so this, this prophecy here is so appropriate, and especially in view of you know, where Matthew is, 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 is seeing it being fulfilled out here. Right? Jesus is withdrawing. Okay? He's telling the crowds not to speak of him. And he says that this is in fulfillment of this passage in Isaiah that says he will not quarrel, okay? He's withdrawing. He won't cry aloud. He's not making a big deal about himself. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets, okay? So it's common, just like now. So back then, it was common to, for people to try to make a ruckus or pick a fight or gain a following. But that's just not, that's just not what Jesus came to do. Now, of course, by virtue... By virtue of his ministry, okay, some of that happened. I mean, you can't do the things Jesus did without, without kind of making a name for yourself. But that's not the reason why he did all that. The reason why he did what he did was to fulfill what was foretold of him, to please the Father, to be obedient to the Father in all things. And so what we see is the supreme gentleness of Jesus. It says, "The bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick, he will not quench." Just think about that for a minute. That is just profound language. There, a, bru- a you know, a bruised reed that is like a, you know, a slightly bent piece of grass, and you barely touch it, and it just fall, it just cracks open. Okay, and yet we have this picture of Jesus that this this bruised, a blade of grass, he just he just gently straightens it back out. Or we have this smoldering wick, okay, this, you know, you blow out a candle and it's just, it's smoldering and it's about to completely go out. But he, he just cups his hands around it and just gently blows on it to bring it back back into flame. That's how Jesus is to his people. Think about all the times in the Gospels where it says that he saw, that he saw the people and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus comes along and he and he, he, he's supremely gentle in his in his ministry. Where where there's even a flicker of faith, he just comes in and 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 protects it and blows the, the and tries to blow it back into flame. He was tender on those on the verge of being broken by the world, broken by their sin. There's the, there's the prostitute woman who came to him and, uh, and she breaks the, uh, the, the expensive vial of perfume on his feet and, and anoints his feet and, and dries it off with her hair. And the Pharisees around, they're, they're, they're looking at her and they're just thinking, what in the world? Why, why is she in my house? And if, she knew, if, if Jesus knew what that woman was about, he wouldn't have anything to do with her. And what is she doing? She's weeping at Jesus' feet. he's gentle he's lowly in heart and i just want to say this that we got we have a lot to learn from jesus here because like i said it takes wisdom there are times to stand your ground and there are times to not and there's and there's a great temptation and we will fall into it if we're not careful to think to 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 not be gentle as we ought to be in the name of standing our ground and sticking a flag in the ground I just think we have to be very careful here because, make no mistake about this, Facebook timelines and Twitter feeds will be a witness against the world on the last day. And a lot of us will have a lot to give an account for. Why we said that in that way that did absolutely no good didn't help anybody, didn't win anybody over. Because it doesn't just matter what we say, it matters how we say it. And I'm not saying, of course, because uh, gentleness does not mean we can't say hard things. Jesus said hard things. But he did it not to condescend not to name call, not to win a fight or to pick a fight. He said things to to speak the truth and to persuade people and to plead people and to convince people. But he didn't do it just to pick a fight. And so we just we just have to be we just have to be very careful here. You should know. And some of, it's, some of it's warranted, some of it isn't. But you should know that there's a whole, if, if you don't know this, th- th- this, you should know this. There's a huge, huge segment of American society, because of their experience, because of the media, because of whatever, their perspective is that they think that conservative Christians, all they are, are conservative political idolaters, I'm telling you. If you don't know that, you should know that. That they think that that our religion all it is is an excuse to be politically conservative and to foist our oppressive views on the rest of the country. It might not be fair, but I'm telling you, that's what a large huge portion of our society thinks that what that that that's what we are. Okay? You should just know that. Okay? I'm not saying that anything I, Many times, things that we do in purity of heart and clean conscience will be misconstrued. But I will say this, we do contribute to a lot of it. And so this is my plea as a pastor in this day, in our moment. And I ask you this, I I, I ask this of myself, and I ask it of you as members of Cottondale Baptist Church. Please be watchful of what you post on social media. Please. Please. And here's a test for you: If you went through your timeline, if, if someone who had no idea who you were went through your timeline, had no idea who you were, went through your timeline, what would they, what taste would they, what taste would they be given in their mouth? Would they think, "I don't know this person, but based off their post, they really love. Politics, they really love Donald Trump, or would they come away with thinking they really love Jesus Christ? I'm telling you, be careful. We don't want to contribute anymore to the challenges we already face. If you're going to be known for something, be known for this. Be known for your love for Jesus. Because other things are important. Other things are very important. I'm not saying politics and things like that are of no importance. But let me tell you something. They infinitely pale in comparison to the importance of Jesus Christ. And so we need to learn from Jesus, who is gentle and lowly in heart. A bruised reed he wouldn't break. A smoldering wick he wouldn't quench. The wisdom, the identity, the mission, the gentleness of the servant. Finally, the hope of the servant, the hope of the servant. Verses 20 and 21 says, uh, it says, until he brings justice to victory and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So notice this. This is fascinating here. It says a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. Now, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because it seems to say that the way that he's going to bring justice to victory is by his gentleness. That's interesting, isn't it? We think to win a battle, we have to... Not be gentle. But Jesus, here the scripture says that the way Jesus was going to bring justice to victory was by his gentleness. It was by the fact that when Jesus was being reviled and slandered by the religious leaders before Pilate. And Pilate says, don't you have anything to say for yourself? And Jesus says nothing. He says nothing. He was being spoken evil against. He was being slandered. He could have rightly defended himself. And he didn't say a word. Why? Because at the end of the day, he was there. He was about to be crucified, not because of the slandering Jews but because it was the will of the Father that the sins of the world might be forgiven. The justice to the nations that Jesus Christ came to bring was achieved not by force, not by asserting self, but by denying self. It's a justice that conquers, get this, not by fear and violence, which there's a lot of that being pandered about today. Fear and violence. But Jesus' victory did not come by either of those, but by gentleness, by the laying down of his life for the eternal good of others. You see, Jesus said that before the end comes, Jesus said that... Because lawlessness would be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And perhaps the greatest temptation in the world, I would say the greatest temptation in the world that we all face is this. It's to respond to evil with evil. It's It's the sin that seems so easily excusable Because they were wrong, that means I can be wrong too. That might fly today, but it won't fly before the judgment seat of God. Evil cannot be conquered with evil. We have to overcome evil with good. And that's what Jesus did. And humanly speaking, the greatest injustice that ever took place in the world, was the crucifixion of the Son of God. And Jesus didn't say a word. He laid down his life for the good of others. Why? Because evil cannot be overcome with evil. It must be overcome with good. And you see, Jesus was in fact crucified, and the religious leaders probably thought that they had won. But they didn't because Jesus rose from the dead and his gospel was proclaimed and is proclaimed throughout all the world. And to this day, 2,000 years later, wherever the gospel is preached, people are believing in him who died and rose again. Why? Because he overcame evil with good. And because of this, Matthew, this quote closes out in verse 21 there. It says, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. You see the contrast here? You see the shocking nature of this right here? This is God's chosen servant. This is the one prophesied by Isaiah. Here he is right here. And the very ones who were supposed to hope in him weren't doing it. But guess what? The ones who were just far off and who had no idea what was going on, they were the ones that when they heard about him, in him they hoped. Jesus is the hope of the world. You see, everyone out there today, everyone out there, they're they're clamoring. People are clamoring for hope. They're dying. They're scared. They don't know what's going on. They don't know what's going to happen. This life, as far as they're concerned, this life is all that there is. So if I lose this life, then I got nothing. No hope. Fearful, afraid. What am I doing? Why why do I even exist? What purpose do I have in life? That's why, you know, people, one of the arguments about, Why people aren't having children, is I don't want to bring children into this kind of world because all they see is this world is just hopeless and futile. But the Bible says Jesus is our hope. The Bible says the world isn't always going to be this way. The Bible says Jesus is the resurrection and the life, the first fruits from the dead. What does that mean? It means there's more coming And just as Jesus rose from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead. And the Bible says even this created order which groans in the pains of childbirth will receive its own resurrection in the new heavens and the new earth. It won't always be this way because there is hope. And we know there is hope because Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And because he lives, we also will live. So as I close this morning, I just want us to remember that Jesus is our hope. And maybe there's someone in here, maybe there's someone watching online this morning who doesn't truly grasp the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I just want to say, look to him, believe in him, turn from your sins, trust in him, surrender your life, give everything to him, and you can have hope you'll finally know what you were made for from the very one who made you. You'll know that this life isn't all that there is. And then then guess what? Then you don't have to be afraid. Don't have to fear. Because this ain't all that there is. There's infinitely more to come. So what does that mean? That means now I can live for him boldly, courageously, without fear. Because... I have hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. This morning, Lord Jesus, we hope in you. We cling to that hope, Lord. We fight and put to death the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil that say that there is no hope. And we have certainty and confidence in that hope because, Lord Jesus, you are alive. And because you live, we also will live. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that we would live as those who have hope. That we would not clamor about, that we would not give in, Lord, to fear and worry and anxiety, Lord, but that we would live lives of bold, confident faith because we have hope. And I pray this morning, Lord, you know, there may be someone listening right now who maybe they just feel like there is no hope, but I pray that by faith this morning, you would grant them to see that you, Lord Jesus, are in fact alive and that changes everything. That changes everything. And since you live, Lord Jesus, I pray that they would come to see That there is hope, that there's an eternity to come, that we will stand before you one day and have the privilege by faith in you to be forgiven of our sins and have the privilege of offering our life to you so that when we stand before you, we can say, Jesus, I gave it all for you. I live for you. I live for something greater than myself because I believed and I had hope. I pray that some today might find that hope. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, church. We're going to sing now a song of decision, a song of response. This is your opportunity to respond to how the Lord has spoken to you. Maybe someone or something is on your heart. You want to lay it to the Lord. Maybe today you want to just come and just recommit to hope in the Lord. Maybe you'd like to pray with me about something. I'd be glad to do that. Maybe you'd like to talk more about how you can follow Christ. Um, You can contact me